is episode 137 of the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. Why not check out some of my free content at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Each week on the Mindset Game podcast, we bring you an inspirational athlete, message, or expert talking about human optimization to teach you how to change the perception of your mindset and become 1% better. Make sure to share this with your friends on your Instagram story, on Twitter, or on Facebook. They can find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that they listen to podcasts by searching for Mindset Game Podcast. And on today's show, I've got Phil White. He's an Emmy-nominated writer and the co-author of Waterman 2.0 with Dr. Kelly Starrett and Game Changer with Fergus Connolly. He's also a frequent contributor to the Inertia and Sub the Mag. And so I think for me, it's just, as you said, like you don't need to go to extremes to, to start to reap some benefits if you're willing to be patient. So really what this is doing is it's, just extending that overnight fast. It's creating a little bit of an on-ramp and off-ramp to kind of amplify the benefits a little bit. And it's just saying, just do it once a week, you know, and maybe it's on a Friday night. So, you know, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to have to get up for work early and, you know, set fuel up for that or whatever. Um, just pick one that's easy for you. And even what you talked about, the benefits. So a real world benefit is my mother-in-law's blood sugar was pretty much in the diabetic range, type 2 diabetes. And the doctor was like, well, you need to take your insulin every day. And yeah, sorry, take your blood blood glucose level. And, um, and so she at first, again, was really even more skeptical than I was that she could do it. You know, she's in her early 70s and she's pretty active. You know, she goes to yoga and walks a lot, but she was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And so my wife, Nicole, talked to her and was like, well, why don't you do it, you know, on this day where I think it will be easier for you the morning portion the next morning. Okay, I'll try, I guess I'll try that. She literally just did it for six or seven weeks and had her next checkup and her blood sugar range is now back in the normal range. So it dropped from diabetic down through pre-diabetic and back down to normal because, as you said, she overcame the, oh, well, I just took my blood sugar and it, it's only down two points. My doctor says I need to get it down 20 or 30. Okay, well, that was weeks one and two. And then, no, mom, you can stick with this. Come on, just keep going. You you know, it's going to help in some way. And then just kept going and kept going. And eventually he does the full-on blood test. That's obviously way more accurate than just a little finger prick test if if you buy a kit from Boots or what have you. And that's what he found. So that admittedly is anecdotal. It's not a study. But when you combine the anecdotal in the real world, and as I said, as a 70-something-year-old person who's, who's pretty active but is no, by no means would consider themselves an athlete, you start to see this is only one of how many case studies that we have now with obviously Frank's friend Jason with the cancer on the far end. Then, okay, well, if that applies to her and to him, well, maybe it can do something for me, even if I'm a stay-at-home mom or dad or I'm, you know, I work in an office or I'm a writer or a photographer, like you don't need to be an athlete because your physiology is more similar to a Premier League football player or to a weightlifter or to Usain Bolt than it is dissimilar. Take a screenshot and tag at Phil White Books and 
at James Robs 11 Without further ado, let's get into today's show. So welcome onto the show, Phil. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. So before we delve into today's topic, Phil, can you give a brief overview of and kind of an introduction for the people that don't know about you and some of the books you have co-authored so far in your career? I should probably respond with the old uh, Dr. Evil quote from Austin Powers. The details of my life are quite inconsequential, but I guess they are somewhat consequential as we're talking about one of my books today. So uh, anyway, I... um, yeah, so I guess with regard to this current crop of books and kind of human performance, which is a ritzy name for uh, health and wellness, fitness, I guess, um, I, right out of college, I w- uh, came over from the UK to a small college in, in Kansas City that no one listening would have heard of um, and played basketball and uh, our kind of footy, i.e. soccer, um, there. And uh, which outraged my brother and my friends as some of them had played, you know, at the Southampton Academy and were pretty decent standard. And they said, what? Someone's giving you money to play. That doesn't sound real. You're crap. And I said, yeah, I know, but I'll take it. So anyway, um, so, yeah, I went there. Um, so I was an English major, um, an English English major at an American university and um, met my good lady wife um, at the end of my sophomore year. So that's code for my second year. And, uh, well, actually, I guess that, that, that's when we got married. So we were, um, met the, the previous year, engaged after four months, married after another four, which is a very un-English thing to do, isn't it? But a very Midwest thing, maybe. And um, so then I ended up jamming my junior and senior years into, into one year, which was kind of crazy. And uh, she worked to support us. And then we lived in Kansas City for quite a while and then moved out to, to Colorado about, oh, I don't know, four years ago, maybe. So anyway, um, out of college, I went to write for a tech company in Kansas City. And then at the same time, I was doing some magazine work. So my good friend growing up, Luke Kreisel, was a magazine editor in New York. And so started doing some work for him. And then also, obviously, being a two-sport two college athlete, always interested in health and fitness and being a writer, I started writing for some sports magazines. So some of those were Sup the Mag, which is kind of like Surfer Magazine, but for stand-up paddleboarding, right when that was starting to take off, like 07, 08. And then also Canoe and Kayak, which is also in the same media group. And uh, at that time, I came in contact with um, Dr. Kelly Starrett, who you may know from Mobility Wad. And this was back before the current kind of very high quality 4k videos that he has it was more like the shaky Blair Witch project uh, flip phone camera in the parking lot at San Francisco CrossFit and I interviewed him because I had buggered my backup uh, deadlifting in the gym and I didn't really we had crappy health insurance so I didn't want to go see a doctor it felt like it was going to be expensive and so I didn't really want to go the surgery route or the painkiller route and so it was a question of finding a third way to fix myself. And just by watching his videos um, on Mobility Wad and on their YouTube channel, I've managed to do that. And so got just emailed him and said, you know, would you be, I fixed myself and using your stuff. I think our readers at Sup the Mag would, would benefit similarly from some of your wisdom. Um, could we just do like a top five or top seven mobility exercises for paddlers interview? So he was up for it and uh, we did that. And then we stayed in touch and 
this was right kind of between the time that he released Becoming a Supple Leopard, which obviously in the CrossFit world, it was like the movement Bible for CrossFit athletes and then went mainstream beyond that. And him and TJ Murphy were just starting to collaborate on the book that turned into Ready to Run. And so we, we came up with the idea together, well, why not do a kind of ready to run style movement guide for anyone who's into paddling, surfing, rowing, etc. And so it took us like six or seven years to finish this thing and um, just just got it out recently. But um, from there came all these other connections to, uh, to his buddy, Brian McKenzie, who people will know from the book Power Speed Endurance. And he was like the endurance guy for CrossFit for 10 or 12 years. And uh, they actually used to live on the same street as each other in San Francisco. So that's how they got friendly. And then, you know, same circle of friends, that kind of high, high performance coaching. And so Brian then introduced me to Andy Galpin, who is a muscle physiologist of all things at Cal State Fullerton. And so the three of us um, wrote, co-wrote the book Unplugged together uh, last year, which is kind of about the limitations of fitness technology and some ways that we need to kind of return to ourselves and recalibrating kind of that internal mechanism that enables us to sense where we are in time and speed and calibrate ourselves and, um, you, you know, just stop being so stop abdicating our decision making to Fitbits and Apple watches and Garmin devices and Strava. And then also, um, out of these connections, I started writing for XPT, which is uh, Kelly and Andy are both advisors for. So that's Led Hamilton's company, um, XPTLife.com, and then also TRX, which people probably know as the, the strap company, the suspension trainers. So all of these really came out of Kelly's contact list and just him saying, oh, my mate over at TRX, the performance director, needs some writing help, told, told him you could help. And then obviously another one is uh, Fergus Connolly, who you had on recently. So we co-authored Game Changer together and then the forthcoming book, 59 Lessons. So kind of more in the team sports realm. And again, that, that connection came from a text from Kelly saying, hey, had lunch with my mates at the 49ers. One of them wants to write a book, told him you could help. And so this is how books come about in this world, I guess. And so, yeah. So I kind of combined the book writing stuff with uh, with blogging for uh, for partners like XPT and TRX and HANA Momentus and some of these other companies. So that was a very long-winded answer, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it gets to the point, though, doesn't it? But in terms of how did the one we're going to talk about in today's episode kind of transpire then with the 15-hour, uh, sorry, 17-hour fast, then how did that kind of the connections relate yep. to the other three or four books you mentioned? Yeah, certainly. So if anyone's read Unplugged, the book with Andy Galpin and Brian McKenzie, they, they may be familiar with a guy who we feature in there called Dr. Frank Merritt. So by day, he is an emergency room trauma physician in, in Florida who's board certified in internal medicine. So he, know, he knows a little bit about how the body works. And uh, by night, he's kind of a self-trained exercise physiologist. And so... In the writing of Unplugged, we interviewed him on various topics, but he called me one day and he said, um, you know that story I told you about of how I got into kind of all the exercise physiology stuff? And I, and I said, yeah. And so the, he said, I, I, I want to write a book about that. And so really what had happened is his best friend had been diagnosed with the most aggressive form of brain cancer and given no more than six months to live. And they said, you know, with the chemo, I know you and your wife are trying to have kids, but that, you know, really impacts fertility often. So it, I, we doubt that's going to happen. 
And um, so he went the traditional medicine route. And obviously, Frank isn't going to bash that because he is in that world. He's a he's a fully licensed MD. But him and some colleagues and friends at the hospital really came together to try to help their friend outlive this prognosis of six months. And Jason ended up living seven years and the cancer was in remission. And then it, it did end up coming back and claiming him. But one of these protocols was fasting. And right before he passed away, he looked Frank in the eye and said, Frank, you've got to promise me that the fasting and the other elements of this protocol you came up with to, you know, keep me alive. And he was able to have two kids with his wife and, um, you know, practice law almost until the end that you're that doesn't end with me, that it just begins with me and that you, you have to promise me now that you'll share this with the world so other people can benefit. And so Frank looked him back in the eye and said, yeah, I'll do that, Jason. I can do that for you. So. Really, this book, The 17-Hour Fast, did come out of that connection with Brian McKenzie, but also at the root of it, out of this promise that Frank made to his friend of wanting to help other people improve their health and fight disease. And um, it was kind of rooted in this tragic story of uh, of his brain, friend and his brain cancer. Well, it's quite an inspirational story in terms of, okay, it has a tragic ending as to how it transpired to become a book. But like you mentioned... If it wasn't for that tragic event, does it get published? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And really just, I think that um, a lot of diet or fasting related books, the end goal for people is to sell a line of supplements and not to bash anyone specifically on any names that we know because we've read those books, right? We're aware of those people. Whereas the end goal here is, as we talked about offline a little bit before the show started, just to to try, to try to create positive change and just um, maybe share an alternate approach to health and wellness that, you know, either a lot of people aren't doing or that maybe they're intimidated by, oh, well, you need to start with, you know, a 24-hour fast and then go to 36 and then go to 72, et cetera. Or they've, they've tried intermittent fasting every day and that, that has been too tough and doesn't fit with their lifestyle. So really what Frank came up with in his research was this minimum effective dose protocol where you just effectively eat dinner um, the night before and then don't eat till the following lunchtime. And you cut the portions in roughly in half, kind of dial up the fats and proteins and reduce the carbs to kind of create an on-ramp and off-ramp effect that kind of gives you some of those physiological benefits of a longer fast. But most people, I think there's a stat that says like 75% of people in the States at least miss at least one meal a week anyway, just because of how hectic our lifestyles are. So if you're doing that with a bit of intention and then you're creating this kind of on-ramp and off-ramp that I mentioned, you can start to see some real physiological benefits in a way that's not going to disrupt your lifestyle and have to, you know, you're doing these really long extreme fasts. Or indeed going the other way and, and um, doing daily intermittent fasting, even though obviously as you explore it, you can play around with the variables and start to do it more regularly if it works for you. But then what you'd have probably found from the research and what probably most people do not take into account, if you are doing a fast anyway overnight because you were asleep, oh, we'll be generous, say between six to nine hours depending on the person so you are technically having an intermittent fast during the night uh so to kind of maybe go a little bit further than that uh, and i think where most people are probably struggle with that is probably because 
um, not just the United States, but I think the Western diet is very carb dominant. So I think maybe because you're going from what in essence is one extreme to the other, I think we're probably people fall victim of that. It's probably consistency. They're not in. They're not willing to be patient. It's probably the 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 greater sense to see. Well, let me stick it out for I don't know a couple of days longer and actually see something actually happening change-wise, whereas I think because we are those kind of beings now where we're rush, 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 okay, this isn't working, let me try something else, so that you kind of, you don't stick it in for the long roads because you're not seeing it, uh, the actual initial change happening in front of your eyes, which I think from... I think any diet doesn't matter fasting keto you name it uh, if you don't let it take hold it's probably not the right word but you're not going to see that the, the, the changes you've got to give it time for your body to adapt before you make uh drastic changes be it going from one extreme to I don't know going from a normal diet quote unquote what you're, you're eating day on day and whatever that may c- constitute of and then going to what oh, I think the mass media has coined as diets which I very much object to um, you're going to struggle because if you don't allow your body to make those necessary changes and allow it to take hold you're just jumping from ship to ship so you're never going to you're never going to make that make or see that change because you're not being consistent with it yeah exactly and kind of like training right like if anyone goes in the gym as like a a scrawny you know 10 stone person and expects to look like george north you know the welsh rugby winner coming out that's like what 16 17 stone just a big beast and they think that that's going to happen overnight they're kidding themselves we're, and it's part of the reason that we see, you know, the, the spike in gym memberships, don't we, start of the year, like this time of year coming up. And then by March or April, the gym's empty again because people have found that it's either too tough to stick to or, as you said, with this kind of hacking or shortcut culture that's become popular the last 10 years, maybe longer. Um, everyone wants to be able to take a pill and feel better or take the shortcut and just experience, you know, dramatic immediate benefits. Um, and if they don't, then, you know, they hit a speed bump or they plateau, then like, oh, well, sod this, you know, and that's not everybody, but certainly there's an adherence problem. And as you rightly said, um, I think a problem of just a, a lack of patience. But I also agree with you what you said about diets, you know, because I, I think that um, we've become far too put far too much onus either on fads you know like it's oh it's high carb one day and then suddenly it's you know or, or fat was the enemy back then and then we realized oh wait a second all the sugar guys were paying people off to blame everything on fat where in fact sugar was a lot of the problem and then oh okay well now we need to eliminate absolutely all carbs all sugar go fully paleo fully keto and there are just these pendulum swings aren't there between these extremes and it, and it speaks to the kind of the zealot in all of us, probably. But then, as you rightly said, we try something for a while and it doesn't give us that, you know, pack on 20 pounds of muscle or that lose 30 pounds of body weight or reduce our body fat percentage to 
whatever or to look like so-and-so on Instagram. And so we ditch it and hop on the bandwagon that's riding through town next. But I think that's a that's a bad kind of ideology for people to have. I, I think the, the, the social media one, you say, is a definite big one. And I'll, I'll hold my hand up and say, <laughs> I've got I've got that problem from time to time because you're comparing yourself to somebody else. Where I think, from a psychological standpoint, is a terrible thing to do because, and I think the 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 analogy you use with George North is a big one because the uh, well, it's a possibility that that ten stone person can get to that. Okay, there's got to be. Uh, DNA markers and, and things of that nature for him to be um, of that uh, what that's term uh, as in if he's the right mesomorph frame to be able to pack on that kind of muscle because if he's sh- long and lean the likelihood is going to take a lot longer than say what am I um, I'm very much in the middle so it's easy for me to kind of go whatever way I please I can lose weight, and okay, I've never been a marathon runner of that kind, but I could if I wanted to kind of go from that extreme or pack on a lot of muscle. To a certain extent, I'll get to, I think, I'll I'll plateau a certain range. I think it would be about, generally, about 70 kilos, about 150 pounds, and then I I can get heavier than that, but that's fat and that's not congruent of performance. But... I think where people probably are misguided and look along the wrong lines is be it looking in magazines, probably social media is probably the big one, and Instagram is probably, we'll call it the devil's advocate with this one, because people are comparing themselves to, I'd say at times, unachievable goals, because, okay, you don't know what that person is taking. You don't know, be it, do they have a full-time nutritionist, full-time trainer, uh, some cases full-time makeup artist to make their or 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 even go a step further than that in terms of uh, a, a somebody that's responsible for their marketing. So they're going to be able to um, portray this ideology of perfection. Whereas, if that person was probably honest with themselves, that does not exist. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is a robot. Uh, you're going to have your bad days. I think where I would very much say to my listeners, and I've talked about this on numerous occasions, that down, down, gosh, the year and a half this podcast has been going, I would say follow somebody that is open with showing the good and the bad, be it Okay, that is a real person because everybody's going to have a bad day, be it, I don't know, uh, training hasn't gone particularly well, um, you may have had the family crisis, you name it, a stressor that's affected your nutrition. Well, that's real. Whereas if I betray, and I'm guilty of it in the past, you, you, you're, cutting, you're putting on, in essence, a facade. Okay, I want to show you... Oh, this ideology of perfection where everything is rosy, I don't struggle with adversity, you name it, or, or, or kind of I'm this indestructible being 
which athletes are perceived as, which I think is, we're on, we're kind of on this, this destructive path because you're thinking, well, you're putting us on a pedestal. We are human beings. We do have emotions. We do have highs and lows. I think maybe where I was probably transposed and didn't want to kind of show that vulnerability side of me was kind of, I use this example of probably leaving out the door. This is the front door. This is where you stop. I'm going to show the true me to be it friends, families, peers that know me very well. You get to know the real James. And on the outside, be it Twitter, Instagram, this is how I want you to perceive me being oh, this athlete that's got all these accolades where I think, whereas I'm not probably doing justice to myself because from one instance, you can't build that rapport with the general public because they can't maybe see the frailties. Well, okay, I can't relate to James the athlete because one, for for starters, I don't want to get to that level of competition. And two, we can't understand or empathise with what I'm going through. I think with problems I've suffered with probably in the last six months, I definitely can now, and I'm very open with that. Okay, I've suffered with this, I've suffered with this, uh, suffered with that. There's nothing wrong with it. You've got to overcome that. I think maybe with having a disability, I have done the same thing. I don't perceive it as adversity, but I think as my mum pointed out to me this evening, that's just me. I don't, I don't perceive it as um, a meteoric, meteoric rise to power or this kind of obstacle to avoid because I've had to, ri- I've had to live it. It was either you overcome it or it defeats you. But I think to come back to my point we need to be a little bit more empathetic with ourselves and look inwards as opposed to being very much extrinsic and looking for motivation from others. It's like, well, if you can, and this is a post I've seen on um, Gold Cut, uh, was it, um, oh, I can't think of the, what the, very much going on Facebook, and I can't think of that. I think it's Goldcast. It was about a uh, post with, you can't truly love somebody else. I think it's more from a relation standpoint, but I think you can get the idea that you can't love somebody else until you love yourself. And I think that you can relate that to be relationships, being an athlete, uh, a big one probably with nutrition and that love-hate relationship with food. Until you actually come to terms with actually finding the real you and accepting it for good and bad you can't accept and it's no point um settling for you could say probably to a certain extent mediocrity from somebody else because you haven't come to terms with yourself so i think it's very much that's where i think it's got to start it's got to be with internally and then go from there yeah very good points great but in terms of coming back to the nutrition one I think it's it's a difficult one, and we touched upon the the intermittent fasting. I think I think people struggle to get their mind round. You, you talked about 
the 17, the 24 hours, the 36 and beyond, I think because they can't, and to a certain extent probably this is a blanket statement, are not accountable to themselves and willing to be a little bit more patient to see the effects of an intermittent one, they probably think, okay, 17 hours is going to be an absolute nightmare. But like you mentioned, people, be it in the US, probably some degree UK is now not that far behind in terms of missing meals, be it uh, the professions people work in, be it office work, lawyers, they're always on the go. Um, whereas I think you probably would be very well inclined to go down that route because it's better to, we won't use the analogy of skipping a meal, but missing it purposely (laughs) as opposed to uh, you're rushing to, I don't know, a meeting, having to forego training or whatever reason because of you feel lethargic, putting that in place and being able to be... um, fulfilled to some extent and feel fullness you're then not going to snack and and get those uh problems with insulin spikes uh obviously the 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 addiction of sugar that's going to bring caffeine and things like that because you associate it with a pick-me-up and i think i think that's probably a better way of looking at it as opposed to having this misguided ideology of okay I perceive this is difficult. This is the other one is going to be nigh and impossible. Okay, I'll be honest and say oh, it's not for me. Intermittent fasting, I've probably tried. I've tried it. I find it difficult. But then I used that analogy early on. You're doing it anyway because you are you are going a period of time. Be it be it if you're a, I say a normal human being, sleeping, you're working throughout the day and sleeping at night is probably the same with, an, with a shift worker work, uh, working at night and sleeping during the day. You are, okay, in essence, flipping the, the clock on its head, but you are doing intermittent fasting. fasting. So I think it's been somewhat open-minded and probably, in essence, thinking outside the box. Well, okay, what have I got to lose by trying it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And it is not coincidental that this methodology involves an overnight period, because as you say, you're already not going to be eating anyway. (laughs) You're asleep if you're not a shift worker or whatever that works nights. And so um, really part of the reason it's designed the way it is and that Frank did that is, is for adherence's sake. Because say you slept, say you're a super sleeper, like Roger Federer sleeps 10 hours or something. Well, you might not get that, but Say if you're a nine hour a night sleeper, well, I'm not a very good mathematician, but 17 minus nine is not very many, right? And so um, I think that, as you say, it's just doing it a bit more intentionally, maybe extending a bit. And you also made a really good point that it's, you make it more difficult in your head than it's actually going to be because your liver could fuel you on ketones for day after day after day. Um, If you were adrift at sea or, you know, there was some other you know, or like escape and evasion in the military, for example, those kind of military exercises. And so we know that we, we are physiologically capable of things, but we, we how many, many limits do we place on ourselves with our mental game or lack thereof, right? Well, there's no way I could 
could go that far. And as you also rightly said, James, with um, the snacking culture, and usually that's just topping off with glucose, isn't it? And we even see this in endurance sports. So a coach will say, well, you need a goo or a gel, you know, if you're on the bike for, you know, triathlon or whatever it be, every 20, 30, 40 minutes. Um, and it's, you know, almost creating sugar addicts out of endurance athletes, even though their goal is noble in its performance. And so I think for me, it's just, as you said, like you don't need to go to extremes to to start to reap some benefits if you're willing to be patient. So really what this is doing is it's just extending that overnight fast. It's creating a little bit of an on-ramp and off-ramp to kind of amplify the benefits a little bit. And it's just saying, just do it once a week, you know, and maybe it's on a Friday night. So, you know, oh, OK, well, I'm not going to have to get up for work early and, you know, set fuel up for that or whatever. Um, just pick one that's easy for you. And even what you talked about, the benefits. So a real world benefit is my mother-in-law's blood sugar was pretty much in the diabetic range, type 2 diabetes. And the doctor was like, well, you need to take your insulin every day. And yeah, sorry, take your blood, blood glucose level. And, um, and so she at first, again, was really even more skeptical than I was that she could do it. You know, she's in her early 70s and she's pretty active. You know, she goes to yoga and walks a lot, but she was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And so my wife, Nicole, talked to her and was like, well, why don't you do it, you know, on this day where I think it will be easier for you the morning portion the next morning. OK, I'll I guess I'll try that. She literally just did it for six or seven weeks and had her next checkup and her blood sugar range is now back in the normal range. So it dropped from diabetic down through pre-diabetic and back down to normal because as you said she overcame the oh i just took my blood sugar and it's only down two points my doctor says i need to get it down 20 or 30 okay well that was weeks one and two and then no mom you can stick with this come on just keep going you you know it's going to help in some way and then just kept going and kept going and eventually he does the full-on blood test that's obviously way more accurate than just a little finger prick test if, if you buy a kit from boots or what have you and that's what he found so that admittedly is anecdotal it's not a study but when you combine the anecdotal in the real world and as i said as a 70 something year old person who's who's pretty active but is no by no means would consider themselves an athlete you start to see this is only one of how many case studies that we have now with obviously Frank's friend Jason with the cancer on the far end, then, okay, well, if that applies to her and to him, well, maybe it can do something for me, even if I'm a stay-at-home mom or dad or I'm, you know, I work in an office or I'm a writer or a photographer, like you don't need to be an athlete because your physiology is more similar to a Premier League football player or to a weightlifter or to Usain Bolt than it is dissimilar. So as you mentioned earlier, while some of the the genetic markers may not be there, um, some of the training and coaching exposure may not be there and just the freaky genetics that some of those apex level Olympian performers like yourself have, um, there are still lines of best fit. And as as, um, my co-author Andy Galpin said, like if you do some kind of strength training with an experienced coach, you are going to get at least a little bit more stronger and more powerful. You may not lift an Olympic medal, you know, a gold medal after lifting an incredible amount of weight on that wooden platform in Tokyo, but you're going to get a bit stronger. If you do some appropriately dosed endurance work with a coach, and as you said, to your point, you stick with it, 
your endurance is going to get a little bit better. And I think it's the same thing with fasting or with breath work or with mobility work. Like we, we put the, put athletes up on this pedestal and sure they are extreme examples of how to express movement and human physiology. But again, we're still 99% similar to their physiology and it's only that 1% that makes the difference or that 3%. And so, like you said, we put people up on a pedestal and think, oh, I want to look like the rock or I want to, you know, whatever it might be, but you don't need to. Um, it's not all about appearance, Second, secondly, but in whatever way you need to perform, whether it's at your job, whether it's as a mum or dad, whether it's as, you know, in a hobby that you enjoy, um, just a little bit of fasting once a week, I really think can, is a small thing. Anyone can do it. And, you know, as I said, my mother-in-law found some benefit. We've heard multiple other case studies of, in quotes, everyday folks or weekend Joes, I guess they would call them here in the States, that are not Olympians, they're not doing Ironmans and all this, but it's helped them in some way. So why not try it? Well, I could probably go a step further. I had a guest on, oh gosh, it had been, oof, I'm going to go on a limb now, say about, I think about 10 episodes ago. She will periodically, I think it was every three months, and we discussed it off air, so obviously that won't be in the episode. Uh, but she would do a week-long fast just to clear out the system and kind of, God, how would it would be like your tech analogy used at the very beginning, probably getting that little bit of a reboot and kind of re- restarting and, and going again. She lives in the U.S., so it probably may be, may be more congruent of that audience because, to some degree, your food's, and I'm going to go out on a limb now, is probably, and you probably agree to some extent, is a little bit more unhealthy than, say, it would be over here in the UK, be, uh, and maybe it's more congruent to do an uh, intermittent fast or a fast of a longer period so you can flush out all those toxins out your body and kind of, in essence, having that restart so to speak and kind of going again and then you can kind of I know this is a little bit out there on a whim in terms of uh, being in some people might, might not like this but being in the corner and you're humming to yourself but it maybe allows you to be more in tune with your body when something is not quite right you've eaten something that is maybe a little bit more intoxicating for you but then you're because you've done that fast, you can know, well, this is how I feel when everything is, what we'll call it, rosy. Okay, this is the food that's given me sensitivity, sensitivity issues. Let me do something about it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for me personally, it's just resilience. And so I mentioned today that I've started... Um, trying to do call stacking, which is just a fancy way of saying rather than having one call at 8 a.m. on a Monday, another at noon on Tuesday, and another at 4 on Wednesday, and I have a lot more interviews with that, you know, with my co-authors and different brands that I work with, but um, I maybe have two or three mornings or afternoons a week where I try to stack all my calls and interviews, and even, you know, where you're asking the questions today, um, even though I'm probably nattering on too much, it may not seem like it, but Again, silliness aside, just to try to then create larger windows of opportunity for focused writing time. And I have certain co-authors who are very high profile, very busy, 
and uh, well, it's most of them. And so I'll get a text like, hey, mate, can we push this 30 minutes? Oh, yeah, no worries. And then suddenly, sorry, I need 45 minutes more. And then for me, because, you know, I do try to create a little buffer of maybe 10, 15 minutes either side for that kind of thing. But it means I could get the three or four o'clock and not have eaten sometimes. And so I have been trying to be a bit more focused on getting that big morning smoothie in. And my wife noticed I was dropping my, my fighting weight was I would drop like two weight classes or something. So um trying to trying to eat a bit more in general, but um and and be conscious of that. But in the work day, if that does happen and say I had to go to three or four o'clock and all I've had is a cup of coffee. I'm okay now and I know I'm okay and I can focus and I've got that kind of so-called keto clarity and I'm good to go. Whereas before I, I, you know, I'd be freaking out, you know, and it's partly because I taught myself out of it, but I'd be scurrying around to try to find a protein bar in my bag or a handful of almonds. And if I couldn't, and even before my workouts, I convinced myself I needed like a banana or an apple and again, a spoonful of nut butter or a handful of almonds or something of that nature. Um, to get through a workout, particularly if it's something savage on the old Concept 2 road machine, like a 10 times one minute fast with one minute active rest in between each one, you know, something just brutal, but I couldn't get through it. And now I know from having worked out, done the, even those harder training sessions, fully fasted or partially fasted, that I can get through. And I've also been through umpteen very full work days. And some people would say, we well, just need to schedule better. Okay, yeah, well, shut up. Um, I'm trying, that <laughs> um, I can do it. And so it's just no, the mental knowledge, the cognitive knowledge of knowing I have a bit more physical leeway than I used to have through the fasting and it proving something to me. And again, all it took was just doing it once a week, um, Nicole doing it once a week, a mom doing it once a week, friends doing it once a week, and starting to have a little round robin about, okay, who's seeing what and how is it helping you? For me, it's just mental resilience. And to a certain extent, um, Phil, does it come down to, uh, to a certain extent, an element of clarity? You kind of know both the pros and cons of doing it. You've seen the successes with it in terms of performance, and this is what I'm going to probably go on to a little bit more. Did you find, actually, from a performance standpoint, you were doing better because of it? I wouldn't say better, I would just say n not worse, <laughs> you know, because I thought it would be worse and significantly so, and, and it's not. And again, I never trained or competed at the level that you did, but even there are studies out there to show that um, a certain, again, minimum effective dose of like 16, 17, 18 hours actually boosts the level of human growth hormone in the body, particularly in men, and can boost testosterone as well. And, you know, you need to look at the work of, say, Dominic Diagostino or one of those guys who's on the clinical side and is way smarter about all this stuff than I am. But that's just some of the research that, that is out there. And so I think for athletes, obviously, you need to keep up a certain calorie intake. But, you know, even I think Jocko Willink was saying that when he fasts, he usually fasts when he travels. Um, which we know is a, is a good way to um, kind of hack into your central clock to overcome some of that asynchronicity, which manifests itself as jet lag. But he said that then you need to be careful when you do get to your destination that you load up because you don't want to be in a massive calorie hole either. And so, again, it's just knowing, like, as you were alluding to earlier, James, just knowing how to balance the scales and not really go having to go to extremes where, like, oh, it's not paleo, bro. How can you eat that? You know, it's like, well... 
sod off. You don't have to pry my oats from or my homemade granola from my dead lifeless fingers, right? And also some of this mythology around like terms like becoming fully fat adapted in quotes, that's bullcrap. Like even if you were full keto or paleo, your liver is still capable of processing sugar and creating glucose as a fuel like just as a human being that's always going to be there and so this notion that you're going to suddenly click into only ketogenesis is just a fantasy that's put about by again people selling books that are really trying to sell you supplements and training programs on the back end and that i think there's a lot of mythology around this kind of stuff that you know, as I said, I mean, Frank is a you know a board certified it, it board certified in internal medicine and emergency medicine. Like he knows his way around the human body. He knows how the liver and kidneys and pancreas function in the digestive system and in the energy production system. And really, what he says is it's just a, it's adjusting the fuel blend a little bit so that you're producing a few more ketones. You're less reliant, as you rightly said earlier, on sugary snack top up every 30 minutes. And it's just a minor adjustment. But in any kind of performance, we know, like British Cycling got famous for kind of um, Dave Brailsford and those guys for the theory of marginal gains. And they know that even a little percentage change can mean a big difference in performance output. And again, you don't have to be an athlete in your job, in your hobbies, in in you know, your family life and how you're able to perform in any scenario, just being able to slightly adapt that and become a bit more resilient, um, change up that blend between glucose and ketones a little bit is going to be beneficial. And again, I'm just the middleman on all this. So look up a Dom Diagostino, talk to Dr. Frank Merritt, you know, talk to some of these experts that are out there on this stuff. But um, I think it it does bear repeating that we're not saying you have to go to any extreme it's just trying to put food back in its proper place rather than it you know, being a false god as it is for many people and it being something that we're not just super reliant on just this constant snacking and topping up. Well, it's, it's coming back to, I think, the root essence of, uh, I think lots of people will, will ask me down the years, well, what did you eat as an athlete? It's not changed from when I was a child. Well, okay, the portion size obviously has changed from when I was a child. But the notion of what I was instilled was a balanced diet. It was just the quantity of food of obviously. Well, I wouldn't necessarily eat as much as that now because I don't need to because I'm not expending my body to those rigors of tra- of training. Gosh, if we use rowing as the example. 30 hours a week, which is a full-time job, um, my body, gosh, at best, I'll be generous now, may get up to about maybe a push, I don't think I've reached it in a long, long time, maybe 10 hours a week, so it do- it doesn't need the fuel constraints that it once did oh, 10 years ago, and my body was probably very much um very fine-tuned machine and I was obviously in my 20s so I was able to recover a lot faster and things of that nature but the quantity has only changed I think the basics were instilled oh gosh what would have been about seven or eight so it's I, I know I need to eat fruit I need to I need to eat um, uh, protein some sort of uh, uh, carbohydrate and I think of that generation I think gone by there was that craze with carbo loading uh, and that one's kind of gone 
full circle. That's what I know now as a professional, as opposed to when I was probably a young athlete, saying, well, that's total garbage. I've got no benefit of, um, and probably many athletes of my generation being in their 30s would have done it as well, be it uh, eating a, be it a lot of rice, a lot of pasta, Friday night before uh, a competition Saturday or Sunday. And I've soon realised nowadays, well, that's to- it's total rubbish. It did, it did for, from a performance standpoint, it did absolutely nothing. It, it was just that surplus in calories. It probably just made me a little bit more, uh, we'll say a bit, a little bit um, f- fuller around the stomach area, and, and of that nature. Whereas the only benefit you're gonna get is if you do an Ironman or, or something of a distance far greater than that. So it's it's a bit pointless to to incorporate that as a regimen in terms of from a nutrition point because it's not going to do you any good because it's not serving a purpose and you're probably having a surplus of carbohydrates where and this is probably where we didn't touch upon it. I think this that comes down to the knowledge base where everybody in the Western world consumes probably in most cases too much carbohydrate so they could probably do with tweaking the diet and maybe changing that perception of their mindset as how they uh, view what they're consuming and obviously like you you mentioned incorporating a little bit more fat and a little bit more protein in their diet and are going to get substantial better results depending on the person and, and, and obviously what you implement from a training perspective than say what you are doing at this present moment having a big proportion of carbohydrates where in most cases uh, I think the general populace and this is a blanket statement now would probably be at 40% of their diet would make we come from carbohydrates well obviously you, mm-hmm. you are and probably in mo- and some uh, severe cases probably maybe 50% plus you are going to stack on the weight because the body, in essence, can't deal with that surplus of um, calories, so it's got to put it somewhere, and it, it, it's oh, it's designed, good or bad, intention-wise, from um, um, oh god, what the word I'm going to use uh, from a oh gosh, it loses me, as in from a meteorological rise in terms from how we are conceived from being uh, as cavemen, well, your body is designed to think that it may need to store it for a rainy day. So I'm going to keep that fat because I might not eat again. Whereas the the world that we live in now is, is probably... We use a little bit of a Star Trek analogy, probably light years long removed from uh, prehistoric times. We can go to a supermarket 24 hours a day, so we can eat food pretty much whenever we want, wherever we like. And if you wanted to eat, you you can do. So I think it's maybe where it's got to come to, down to things, you've got to change that perception of how you view food okay, you may have that opportunity to be able to eat like that, but the body's biological clock has not changed for millions of years, and 
until probably maybe for another couple hundred years, we aren't we aren't going to evolve again to be able to uh, come to terms with what the body's having to face on a day to day basis with what we're facing on the day, uh, at this present moment. So until maybe science catches up with what is in essence our being. We've got to change the the the, the kind of the perception upstairs. Yeah, yeah, and what you said is right because what we're, what you're talking about is this kind of nexus of that high hardwired scarcity mentality with an overabundance and availability of food, and you cannot expect an organism to exercise moderate behaviour when it's hardwired for excess and then you meet the excess with an oversupply. And so it, you're allowed to indulge it, which I had a similar conversation with, um, with a coach at precision nutrition, actually about social media. Like you cannot expect reasonable, moderate behavior when you have, you know, these companies that are pulling psychiatrists and psychologists away from Stanford and Yale and Oxford and paying them, umpteen hundreds of thousands a year to design systems that are inherently addictive and that tap into the fundamental mechanisms in our in our DNA and in our brains to be excessive and then expect moderation. Like hope is not a strategy. Like we need to set up boundaries around these things. And I think it's no different with eating. Like if you know you have a weakness for chocolate chip cookies and you want to lose a bit of weight, well, don't have chocolate chip cookies in the house. You know, if you if you recognize that you or you suspect that you may have a social media addiction, well, use moment or freedom or rescue time to set some hard boundaries around that, because often even intention. Oh, I've got, you know, a lot of willpower. Good luck, because a lot of people do. Maybe you, you do. You have like a Navy SEAL or an SAS like iron will you know okay well great but that isn't most people and so therefore what you need systems and structures and boundaries in place to um for you to butt up against you know and, and if you don't have that then it's going to be difficult to to make behavioral change and to create more positive habits and and for those to to stick well, i think you use a, you use a good term there phil because I'll, I'll use the example of facebook Okay, it was a little bit later coming to the UK, and I was at university when it first appeared. Uh, what would it be back in two thousand seven? You think you talk about that behaviour change? Well, it's changed my behaviour at university because of its, its existence. Because okay, would have I been more productive from day to day in my studies if it wouldn't have been in existence? Okay. Hypothetically, I don't know because we'll never know because we're going back 11 years. I, I don't know. Would I be... I would think probably not because being being my myself, I would probably have found um, another distractor to, to be in place of that. And I think you, you talk about that behavior. It's become from that very first day, it's like clockwork every day. Bang, you check social media. So I think... Uh, I think for good and bad, there are benefits to it. But then you talk of that addiction, it just is another form of addiction, uh, be it sugar, cigarettes, you name it. It's got to be overcome. So it's putting in a, um, a system in place where you were able to 
be held accountable in essence to say, well, okay, I don't know, I'm going to spend well at most half an hour on this application. That app's going to tell you, okay, you've reached your limit, James, for today. It's now time to kill it. I think it'll hold you accountable to say, okay, let me put in a perception where I'm will maybe do it all in one go and get it out of the way and get it out of my system. Okay, that's probably more difficult for some than others. Or let me be a little bit more forthcoming with my time and kind of schedule it where, okay, I need to do this for business, be it social media post, uh, engage with your followers, connect with like we have done over the last couple of days, be it from a connecting standpoint, be it to be able to add value to other people's life and do it of that nature as opposed to, this may be a little bit harsh to millennials, you will see them constantly hunched over in front of a mobile phone, tablet, you name it. You're thinking, well, in the long run, you're going to be hunched over like, well, most people you relate to being hunched over a, a, um, with a walking stick or a Zimmer frame of that nature would be the elderly population. Okay, that will come down to numerous other factors because social media for them didn't exist. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and I think it's just like anything else. Like you don't have to become a zealot one way or another, right? It's just an exercise in in moderation and um, just setting a few boundaries and seeing where your time allocation um, goes and it, is your behavior aligning with what your stated priorities are, yes or no? And if not, how are you going to do that? Can you do it through willpower? Well, good for you if you can. But if not, what are the tools and systems that you can use to to rebalance things a little bit? And this is probably goes nicely into my penultimate question for you, Phil. And you probably may have answered this already. But how would you, from your opinion, get people to change their perception of their mindset, but also be able to make themselves 1% better? Yeah, I mean, like I said with the fasting thing, if it's something that you only have to do once a week, um, or even what Kelly Storrett says about the minimum effective dose for mobility, well, just do 10 minutes a day every day, and it starts to become, you wouldn't just brush your teeth once a week or once a month, or you'd have manky teeth, which, again, is an Austin Powers thing, isn't it? Okay, I get it. I have bad teeth, right? So we're British. Of course we do. But, um, you know, stereotypes aside, we um, I think it's just repeating a behavior over and over again until it becomes habit, but in a positive way rather than it being destructive. And again, it just you can tell a lot about a person's priorities through their their um, credit card statement slash bank balance, um, the checkbook and their calendar. So, again, it's just calendaring stuff. Like if you, you know, learning from several people who mentor at scale, like Chase Jarvis, who founded the, the website Creative Live, and from Tim Ferriss and others, just learning how to just calendar block, like block off, as I said, th this morning was all calls and meetings. Okay, well, tomorrow morning is hopefully all writing. 
And so just blocking stuff off, and, and you can do that in your personal life. If it's a date with your spouse or a significant other, okay, well, block that off. If it's a workout, block that off and stick to it with the same diligence that you would if it's a work meeting. And so I think that certain habits, even like with mobility, say, or with this bus, just calendar it out and stick to it the same as if your boss had said, I need this project by end of day Wednesday. And you thought, all right, to do that, I've got to work on it all day Monday and half a Tuesday. And you block that off. You get it done and you don't get fired. It's the same thing. So that's just a really basic system of calendaring is is how someone can get 1%, 5%, 10% better very simply, just by better organizing their time and creating a structure where they can um, – it's visual, it's simple, and just sticking to it in their personal life as you would if it was work-related. Well, I think that's very much – very, I think it's become very much facilitated to be able to do that because you have a number of tools you mentioned to be able to do that. You, well, there's probably application-wise, there's probably well, there's three or four I can think of just off the top of my head in terms of to be able to block out that time. You don't actually have to go out of your way and spend excess money because those applications are on most people's cellular devices, tablets, be it Android or Apple, it's there in front of you. You just gotta be accountable to yourself, be it I'm predisposed to, to blocking at that time and put the importance like we mentioned early on in the episode on yourself. Okay, I think this is probably times where even myself included, we look to help others but then forget about ourselves and thinking, well, if I don't look after number one, am I truly helping other people? Because if I'm not healthy, I'm not happy, am I best serving somebody else? Probably not. So I think it's it's looking at it from, uh, as um, Ed, Ed Thomas put it, I think it was just yesterday, on his social media, being selfish and thinking about the first thing in the day of yourself, whereas I think that would probably be very much um, alien to some people. I think I probably did it very much as an athlete and didn't even think of, about an eyelid uh, of, of being either I had to kind of have a different shift the other way. But it's been thinking of number one, if you can't iron out your problems first, how can you truly uh, help others? Okay, he talked about... I mean, student debt, you need to sort yours out before you help somebody else. Okay, that's a very uh, severe scenario. Okay, it's not going to transcend with everybody or resonate with it, but everybody has that essence of adversity. Their problem they're suffering with right now, sort that out first, and then look to serve others or help uh, others and go from there. Okay, I've probably had to learn it the hard way with my health before I've locked it back on myself and okay I'm not actually helping anybody else by not being happy not being tip top conditioned physically where does the buck lie solely at my feet I've not I've not put the response I've not taken the ownership to, mm-hmm. to look after myself and people might be horrified to hear me say that but how can you go from one extreme being at the top of the pyramid to being at the bottom of it within the space of 
six years, and what happens to the best of us? Uh, I I've I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't risk worse on my uh, put it on my worst enemy for that to happen, but it's taken a probably hitting a low point for me to realize. Okay, James, this you're not you you weren't eating correctly. You weren't exercising effectively, and I said I was exercising, but probably not to the standard that my and people had warned me down down the months leading up to it. You're not exercising enough. You need to go either all in, all in, and and and, and jump in and kind of go back to what you were at the elite level. Okay, for thirty hours a week, no thank you. Uh, or be resigned to the fact that you are going to be an invalid or, or such, I don't want to cause any offence by saying that, but be resigned to the fact that you're going to probably be in a wheelchair and be very immobile, you're going to have other health-related issues. I wasn't probably accepting of that, thinking, well, that's not going to happen to me. Okay, I've not, luckily, I've not got that severe, but I've had back problems, uh, health scares, and ever another mental issues that go with it because you're thinking oh, probably of traits I've learned from other family members, being my mother and my grandmother, who are very much warriors. I've inherited that. I'm going to blow things out of proportion. Uh, I don't know my back. I was thinking, oh, do I have a slip disc? Do I have a bulge disc? You're thinking, okay, I still don't know to. At the moment, but I've been sent to orthopedics, uh, and they've sent me on to um, what is it, the spinal unit in Gaboa, which you, you probably would have heard of, um, in, to to go to the best of the best. Okay, I'm fortunate living in a country where that's a luxury. I've got free healthcare. I don't really have to worry about things like that. It's it's going to the best, but. Because I have those systematic underlying issues, I'm thinking the worst case scenario, so I'm just digging myself a bigger and bigger hole. I think, and then also probably from an athlete perspective, where everybody would probably agree with, we bottle up our feelings. It's it's We are supposed to be robots uh, because we are portrayed as that mm -hmm. in social media um, maybe a little bit less so now because you either, in most cases, it is the athlete doing their actual social media. So you're portrayed as, well, indestructible. We don't we don't get injured. Well, that's total rubbish. It's like a touch wood. Uh, I've never had a, any serious injuries, uh, bar uh, well, a, a, I had ACL damage, but I didn't tear off the bone. Or anything like that. I had rotated the cuff. I tore a little bit, but it's not the. You hear horror stories of people ripping muscles off the bone. Okay, touch wood that doesn't happen to me <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Uh, or I don't wish that on any on my worst enemy for that to happen. But in the grand scheme of things, I've been relatively healthy. So it's coming back to my point. You've got to look after number one first and look to firefight with anybody else's problems, secondly. Yeah. 
And I think it's, um, again, an extreme scenario, but when they're given a little safety talk that no one listens to because they've all got their Bose headphones on on the plane, where they say, now, if we have a pressure problem, the mask is going to drop and make sure if you have a child or someone else with you that needs help, you do your own first. Because if you're unconscious, you're not going to be able to help them. It's basically the, the, the analogy, right? And I think that that goes for so much in life um, where if you're, if you're not capable, well, you're not going to be able to help your kid or your, your spouse or your friend or, or whatever else. And everyone has those issues. And to take care of them or another one, our, our pastor said um, back in Kansas City, said something like, you know, people always think about, like, how, how can I serve, like, within the church mentality? Well, and don't switch off, you know, if, if um, you, know, you don't have these kind of beliefs. But just hear me out with this. He said, um, you know, that people think you have to go and be a missionary in Africa or in Poland or somewhere. He was like, I think it's it's more courageous and can have more impact on your life than if you admit that you're struggling with anger and you need to go to counseling or that your marriage is in trouble and that you need to go to counseling. And it's not to say that being a missionary in a far-flung part of the world is bad, but his point was get your own house in order first and then you'll be in a much stronger position should you then you know, and decide to do something big and dramatic like that. And so, as you and I talked about a little bit off air, like how can you be a benefit to your community? How can you serve an unmet or undermet need? And how can you give? And Martin Luther King said this really well, that everyone can be great because everyone can serve. And it's like, wow, that's pretty hard hitting. And you don't need best-selling books. You don't need Oscar-winning screenplays. You don't need to be, you know, a well-beaten athlete um, to do something that's meaningful for somebody else. So find a way to serve, um, find a way to give. Uh, and, and that is a, way, a different way to define greatness, even if it's just helping one person. And my final question to you, Phil, before we wrap up the episode, is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, mm -hmm. what would that be? I think just... Um, just try some ways that look at your life and see how your habits and your behaviors are aligning or not aligning with the two, three, four things you say are most important in your life. And also ask someone else to speak truth into that. Someone that knows you really well, a best mate, um, again, a, a significant other, a brother, sister, whatever. And then try to get some systems or tools in place to help you recalibrate so that your priorities and your behaviors and habits are more closely aligned with the goal of then being able to use your time and your resources to help others. So once again, Phil, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Oh, thank you so much, James. Real pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Phil and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at philwhitebooks and at jamesoroberts11 on Twitter and on Facebook. And again, do check out Phil's book, The 17-Hour Fast, Waterman 2.0, Game Changer and Unplugged. Also, do check out my free content at fitamputee.com co.uk forward slash free dash resources make sure to check those out the links will be in the description you can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsim.com under the category nutrition 
Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.